Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Today's discussion, we're going to run through the recently published ASAP clinical policy on the treatment of headache in the adult emergency department. Now, I do want to mention that there are a ton of studies that are referenced in the discussion today. I'm not going to stop and give the reference every single time one of the speakers mentions it, but I will list them all in the show notes. Also, I want to let you know that I always find the discussion of this a little bit dry because an awful lot of it is just a look at what limited data there is. And the conclusions mirror what I think is the general thought process on this, that there's no perfect answer on a lot of these questions. So just keep that in mind as our guests talk about it. Now, our guests today are two people that sat on the writing committee for this guideline. Dr. Stephen Godwin is a professor and chairman in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. And Dr. Richard Shee is a medical toxicologist and emergency medicine physician in the Division of Emergency Medicine at the Charles E. Schmidt College of Medicine at Florida Atlantic University. So let's jump right into the clinical policy questions. I believe the first question is about risk gratification. Dr. Godwin, can you take that one? So just to give some quick background, obviously headache is something we all see in the emergency department quite frequently and is a challenge in many ways, but mostly because it is a common complaint, but has potentially very high risk outcomes in the sense that patients can come in and obviously have something very benign like a migraine or just a simple headache. Headache, and then also have this very similar presentations and ultimately have something very severe like a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So if you look at how often we see these patients, you're looking at something that's really the fifth leading reason for emergency department visits in the United States. It accounts for about 3.8 million visits per year, which is 2.8% of all ED visits. That's actually up from 2% when at the time we did the prior policy. The prevalence affects not only ED volumes, but also resource utilization in our departments. Previous studies have shown up to about 14% of patients who present with headache complaint require or actually underwent imaging. So with up to 5.5% of those imaged having some significant pathologic diagnosis as a result of their findings. More recent data have demonstrated up to 31% of headache patients requiring neuroimaging. So we're utilizing a lot of radiation and a lot of scans in this patient population. So it's, it's a complex and often undifferentiated clinical presentation, and it really helps us to kind of think through which patients need neuroimaging and which patients could be referred as into the outpatient setting. The policy itself focuses on ED evaluation and treatment of non-traumatic headaches with an acute onset that is not consistent with an ongoing chronic disease process. There are multiple obvious pathologic causes of acute headache that we need to worry about. But unfortunately, a disproportionate amount of the literature is focused on rapid identification for subarachnoid hemorrhage. That really creates a paucity of studies to address these other entities that are often quite severe, such as acute subdural thrombosis. So without that literature to really address questions related to these other etiologies, the diagnostic question in this policy were derived recognizing that although data related to other significant diagnoses were associated with headache and would be considered in the literature, the predominance of the studies focused on diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I say that just to make sure that the readers and also those listening continue to focus on the fact that other causes of headache that may have severe 
or debilitating outcomes are possible and should be considered outside of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. We're going to move on from that into our second question. And Dr. Shi, this one is for you. The second question talks about the use of non-contrast head CTs for the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. The committee came up with the question, in the adult ED patient presenting with acute headache, are there risk stratification strategies that reliably identify the need for emergent neuroimaging? So in looking at this literature, the main driver of this data really came down to a a few studies, but one study in particular is what we will talk the most about. But giving a little bit of background as we get into this, we know that most patients with sudden onset severe headache have benign causes. The data suggests that about 10 to 15% have serious pathology, with most subarachnoid hemorrhage coming from an intracranial aneurysm or AV malformation. So patients with sudden onset peaking within an hour of headaches have demonstrated up to a 6 to 7% incidence of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Despite the evidence of our outcomes over across the board improving with subarachnoid hemorrhage due to neurosurgical intervention, it still remains a devastating condition with the case fatality rates of up to 50%. So the diagnosis is critical and needs not be delayed for risk of worsening outcomes. So we wanted to look at the risk stratification tools that were out there. And as noted, the study by Perry and Associates, which ultimately is better known as the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, is probably the most prominent study that uh, we'll review. And like the other studies, we look for the strengths and limitations to see how those are best applied in the clinical presentation of these patients. So if you look at the Perry study, it's about 2,131 patients. Uh, 132 of those had subarachnoid hemorrhage, which accounts for about 6.2%. In the derivation of the initial portion of the rule, it included age greater than 40 years of age, patients with neck pain or stiffness, witness LOC, or onset of pain during exertion. And this actually demonstrated a fairly significant sensitivity of 98.5% with a fairly good confidence interval, 94.6% to 99.6%. But the specificity, obviously, is very wanting with 27.5%. The authors then added two complaints of thunderclap headache and limited neck flexion on exam. And this resulted in what has now become the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule with a sensitivity of about 100%. That also has very good confidence interval of 97.2% to 100% on sensitivity, but once again, uh, struggles with as far as specificity with 15.3%. The Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage study was then followed up by Perry in 2017 by a, a validation study. This is actually a class three study and enrolled about 1,153 patients of a possible 1,743 patients. Like the previous Ottawa study, there is potential for selection bias as there was a fair amount of fallout of patients. In the original study, you had about 78% of study-eligible patients enrolled. In the validation study, it went down to 66.2%, which accounted for patient being downgraded to a class three study. That study found similar results with, again, utilization of the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule with a sensitivity of approximately 100%. Now, the confidence intervals on the validation study were a little bit wider at 94.6 to 100% as compared to the original study, but that's mostly due to the power of the study itself. 
Another study that looked at clinical variables by Chris Carpenter, spontaneous subarachnoid hemorrhage, a systematic review of meta-analysis describing the diagnostic accuracy of history, physical examination, imaging, and lumbar puncture with an exploration of test thresholds. Obviously a very long title, but essentially the authors looked for clinical variables taken independently, and they included 17 of the clinical variables you would most think about, including photophobia, vomiting, worst headache of life, nausea, loss of consciousness, those types of things. Looking at the pooled sensitivity of this data, and it ranged from about 7% to 89% with an average of 39% pulled sensitivities. The specificity ranged from 26 to 96%. The results demonstrated none of the clinical variables used in isolation had test characteristics good enough to rule in or rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. Based on those studies, we were able to create a recommendation at the level B recommendation that states use the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule defined as greater than 40 years of age, complaint of neck pain or stiffness, witness loss of consciousness, onset with exertion, thunderclap headache, and limited neck flexion on exam as a decision rule that has high sensitivity to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage, but low specificity to rule in subarachnoid hemorrhage. For patients presenting to the ED with a normal neurologic examination result and peak headache severity within one hour of onset of pain symptoms. The follow-up point on that recommendation is that although the presence of neck pain and stiffness on physical examination in the ED with an acute headache is strongly associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage, do not use a single physical sign and or symptom to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that's mostly driven by the Carpenter study, which found a strong association with subarachnoid hemorrhage and neck stiffness, but the positive likelihood ratio did not lend itself to allow that you could use a single examination finding as a tool to rule in or rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. So at this point, I'll turn it over to Dr. Shi for the next question. Hello, everybody. My name is Richard Shi. In the adult ED patient, presenting with acute headache, does a normal non-contrast head CT scan performed within six hours of headache onset preclude the need for further diagnostic workup for subarachnoid hemorrhage? A non-contrast head CT is generally the initial study for any patient that is considered at risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage. And in general, it's considered to be very sensitive in the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that is roughly around 90% for all comers. However, it has been known for a while that this sensitivity of the head CT decreases over time. When you look at a head CT, blood shows up as hyperdense, as it has high protein content, and this shows up as denser than brain tissue. These proteins, however, are degraded or absorbed over time. Thus, as time elapses from the onset of the headache, the CT scan findings are more isodense. From past studies, we know that the sensitivity of the head CT and the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage decreases. In addition, from past studies, we know that around six hours from headache onset seems to be a critical threshold, and that is the reason for this critical question. Through our literature search process with the Clinical Policy Committee, A thorough literature search is conducted, and then studies that are identified go through a rigorous methodologic evaluation. 
And a number of the papers are eliminated because of methodological flaws. And because of that, only two papers that were considered of appropriate quality were included in answering this critical question. And thus, there's really surprisingly limited quality evidence addressing this critical question. The first study is another study published by Perry and his colleagues from Canada. And you'll see that that's a recurring theme. The Perry group and Dr. Perry as the first author has published extensively on this topic. And a number of those papers are very influential in answering a number of the clinical questions that we're addressing today. This study is a multi-spenter prospective study that took place over approximately 10 years and was performed at 11 EDs in Canada. They enrolled consecutive patients with non-traumatic headache with the inclusion criteria of age greater than 16, their headache reaching maximal intensity within one hour, and the onset within the last 14 days. All the CT scans were interpreted by what they call qualified local radiologists. So this included general radiologists as well as some neuroradiologists. All the CT scans were third-generation multi-slice CTs. They ended up enrolling over 3,000 patients, of which 240, or 7.7%, had subarachnoid hemorrhage. In their group of 3,000 patients, 953 had onset of symptoms within six hours and had the CT performed within that time window. Of that group of 953, 121 cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage were identified, and none of those were missed by that initial CT. So thus, the sensitivity of the six-hour CT scan for the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage in this study was 100%, with 95% confidence interval of 97 to 100%. The sensitivity of all patients, not just within six hours, was 92.9%, with confidence interval between 89 and 95.5%. One criticism of this, patient, of this study was that 13 patients in the less than six-hour CT group were lost to follow-up. That's 13 out of the 953 patients. That represents less than 2% of the patients. So that's generally felt to be a very good follow-up rate for prospective studies However, people have criticized this paper for those lost 13 patients. The other quality study is a class three study, and this is the Dubosch et al. paper published in 2016 in Stroke. This paper is a meta-analysis, and they identified five papers that were included in their analysis. One of those five studies is the class two study by Perry that we just discussed. The others included in this meta-analysis were identified in our literature search. However, after methodologic review, all four of these studies were classified as X because of critical study design flaws. These four individual studies were not included in our critical question analysis. However, they are part of the Dubosch meta-analysis. I do just want to review what class X studies are in the context of the ASEP clinical guidelines. They are studies which have significant methodologic failures or concerns about the collection of data, the interpretation of the data, or major conflicts of interest that were not reported. In this instance, the thought is that that can be mitigated by pooling the data prior to evaluation and combining it in a meta-analysis. So it's why this guideline writing committee continued to use data from studies that when the study was approached as a whole was deemed to have concerns, but patient level data was thought to be adequate. You can see a far more in-depth description 
of these studies and how that evaluation was made in the clinical policy itself. Pooling all five of these papers, they identified 8,907 patients that they included in their meta-analysis. 13 of these patients had a missed subarachnoid hemorrhage on the initial CT scan. Of those 13, 11 of them came from one study. That particular study is a retrospective study that received a methodologic class of X from our methodologist and was not included in the analysis for this clinical policy. Despite including these five studies, the sensitivity of the CT in the six-hour window was still very good and was 98.7% with good confidence intervals, 97.1 to 99.4%. Based on this data, the ASEP Clinical Policy Guideline Committee came up with one level B recommendation for this critical question, and that is use a normal non-contrast head CT performed within six hours of symptom onset in an ED headache patient with a normal neurologic examination to rule out non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. All right, now question three is on the use of CTA versus LP to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage in the presence of a negative non-contrast head CT. This leads us to our next critical question. In the adult ED patient who is still considered to be at risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage after a negative non-contrast head CT, is CTA, CT angiogram, of the head as effective as LP to safely rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage? After the literature search process and methodologic evaluation of these studies, there were no class one studies identified. There were no class two studies identified, but there were six class three quality studies were identified. That's the basis for this critical question evaluation and recommendation. Of these six studies, only one study directly compared LP versus CTA after a negative head CT. And that's this Carstairs study published in 2006 in Academic Emergency Medicine. This study was a prospective single-site study. They enrolled consecutive ED patients aged 18 years or older with a clinical concern for subarachnoid hemorrhage. All patients had a head CT and a head CTA. The CT results were not made available to the ED physician. If the head CT was negative, an LP was performed. The study objective was to compare the negative CT followed by LP versus negative CT followed by a CTA in the diagnosis of acute subarachnoid hemorrhage. 131 patients met enrollment criteria. 15 of them did not consent. 10 did not complete the study, leaving 106 patients in this study. Of those 106, five cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage were diagnosed. Looking at the CT-CTA pathway for diagnosis, all five out of five of the subarachnoid hemorrhages were identified. Utilizing the negative CT-LP route, two of five were identified, two of five were missed, and one of five, the patient ended up refusing the LP. When comparing these two diagnostic strategies, negative CT followed by LP, the sensitivity was 40% with very wide confidence intervals. Comparing that to negative CT followed by CT angiogram, the sensitivity was 100% with also very wide confidence intervals. So unfortunately, this is the only quality study that directly compared CTLP versus CTCTA. And further, there were only five subarachnoid hemorrhage cases in this study, leaving the study with very wide confidence intervals. Another approach 
to answering this critical question is to look at how effective CTA is at diagnosing cerebral aneurysms. The gold standard radiologic test is digital subtraction angiography. And after the literature search, two quality studies were identified, the 2070 Al-Kakaldi study and the 2011 Menke study. Both of these studies looked at CTA in terms of how well it diagnosed cerebral aneurysms. And in both studies, the sensitivity was over 99%. Another study published by Perry and the group from Canada looked at how well negative CT followed by an LP identified subarachnoid hemorrhage. This paper enrolled 592 consecutive ED patients. If the initial head CT was negative, an LP was performed. If the LP was negative, follow-up for missed subarachnoid hemorrhage occurred for a minimum of six months. They diagnosed 61 cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's 10.3% out of the group of 592. The CT scan identified 55 of those cases, 90%. The LP identified 6, 10%. And the follow-up identified zero cases. And thus, the algorithm of CT scan followed by an LT is very sensitive for diagnosing subarachnoid hemorrhage. To summarize the data presented thus far to answer this critical question, we have some data directly comparing CTLP versus CT-CTA from the Carstairs study. Unfortunately, this is very limited by only having five total cases of subarachnoid hemorrhage. We also have data from several studies showing that CTA compares favorably with a gold standard radiologic test, the DSA, in its ability to diagnose cerebral aneurysms. And finally, CTLP is extremely sensitive for ruling out subarachnoid hemorrhage, as we discussed in the Perry paper from 2008. With this available data, there are also additional considerations that are relevant to answering this critical question. And some of these favor the use of CT-CTA pathway, and some favor using the CT-LP pathway. Favoring CT-CTA, by doing CTA, you avoid an LP, which is invasive and uncomfortable and associated with post-LP headaches. There is a low diagnostic yield of LP. And as we discussed with the 2008 PERI study, the number needed to LP to diagnose one subarachnoid hemorrhage was 90 cases. Other studies have also shown very high number needed to LP rates for the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. In addition, there are high rates of LPs found with red blood cells. Some of those are considered traumatic LPs. Approximately 35% of them will have red blood cells in one of the tubes during an LP, where only, at least for the PERI study, 90 LPs were performed to confirm one subarachnoid hemorrhage. This leaves a clinical dilemma. The RPCs seen in the LP, are they due to a traumatic tap, or is this due to subarachnoid hemorrhage? In addition, CSF xanthrochromia has several issues as well. In its interpretation, we know that spectrophoto methods for interpreting xanthrochromia is the best way to assess this. Unfortunately, in most hospitals in the United States, it's visually assessed, which is suboptimal. In addition, the timing of the LP affects xanthrochromia as well. Xanthrochromia occurs when blood in the CSF is converted to bilirubin, and this takes time. So the recommendation in terms of the timing of the LP can affect 
whether or not xanthochromia is seen. Optimally, it's recommended that the LP be performed more than 12 hours or less than two weeks from headache onset. And finally, shared decision-making is also a consideration. When patients are presented the pros and cons of CTLP versus CTCTA, about 80% of them choose the CTCTA pathway. Factors favoring LP, the CTA may discover an asymptomatic aneurysm, which could lead to unnecessary neurosurgery. The CTA is associated with increased radiation exposure and IV contrast exposure. And finally, there may be some missed alternative diagnoses that are picked up with LP that would be missed from performance of a CTA. And these include increased intracranial hypertension, as well as viral meningitis, and some cases of bacterial meningitis. Given this data, the Clinical Policy Committee has two Class C recommendations. The first, perform LP or CTA to safely rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage in the adult ED patient who is still considered to be at risk for subarachnoid hemorrhage after a negative non-contrast head CT result. And the second one, use shared decision-making to select the best modality for each patient after weighing the potential for false positive imaging and the pros and cons associated with LP. Our last question today moved away from subarachnoid hemorrhage and to the use of opioid versus non, and to the use of opioid versus non-opioid pain treatments for headache. Dr. Godwin, this one's up to you. In the adult ED patient treated for acute primary headache, are non-opioids preferred to opioid medications? Now, obviously, this is driven by the huge epidemic that we have in the United States related to opioid abuse and use. Despite the recognition of, of the global opioid epidemic, as well as multiple national guidelines that discourage the use of opioids as a first or second line treatment of headache in the acute setting, there remains practice patterns that use early implementation of opioid therapy. When we looked at this evidence, it actually supports this statement. There was a study by Young et al. published in 2017, which is a cross-sectional analysis of consecutive adult ED patients across three emergency departments with different patient population. And the results clearly demonstrated significant use of opioids in migraine management. Of 1,222 visits for migraine headache, 35.8% had opioid medications ordered. Overall, opioid use was greatest in the community setting, in which it was ordered about 68.6% of the visits. The urban ED followed that with about 40.9% of the migraine patients, with the academic center utilizing opioids in about 12.3%. So obviously, this question was relevant and is relevant. So when we looked at the data, it really comes down to, I think, one study which is the most recent of the studies, being kind of the coup de grace for utilization of opioids in the migraine patient presenting to the emergency department. And that study is by Ben Friedman, randomized study of IV procloperazine plus diphenhydramine versus IV hydromorphone for migraine. The study found that procloperazine was much better than hydromorphone. The study was a essentially halted by the data monitoring committee after 127 patients had been enrolled. The primary outcome was achieved in procoparazine arm by 37 of the 62 participants. And the primary outcome included sustained headache relief 
for 48 hours after one dose of the investigational medication. The secondary outcome was sustained headache relief after one or two doses of medication, and that was achieved in the prochlorperazine arm by 37 of 62 patients, or 60%, and in the hydromorphone arm in only 26 of 64 patients, or 41%. The authors concluded that IV hydromorphone is substantially less effective than IV prochlorperazine for the treatment of acute migraine in ED patients and should not be used as a first-line therapy. There are other studies supporting these findings, but all drive the same conclusion that either the non-opioid or non-inferior to the opioids or the opioids themselves do not perform as well as the non-opioids in those studies. Given the safety and the issues associated with opioid addiction, all the studies come to the same conclusion that opioids should be avoided in the ED population whenever possible. So the ASAP Clinical Policies Committee recommendation put forward a level A recommendation that providers should preferentially use non-opioid medications in the treatment of acute primary headaches in ED patients. All right, there's a lot there to summarize, and I'm going to just briefly touch upon the high points. In summary, the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule can be used as a decision rule that has high sensitivity to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage within one hour of onset. You should not use a single physical sign or symptom to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. You can use a normal non-contrast head CT performed within six hours of symptom onset in an ED headache patient with a normal neurologic exam to rule out non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. You should use shared decision-making in deciding on the use of LP versus CTA to safely rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage as the clinical policy recommends either or as reasonable options understanding the risks and benefits of either approach. And finally, the policy recommends the use of non-narcotics and the avoidance of opioids for ED headache management. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Thank you to the guests for being with us today. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series earlier in this podcast feed or at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. I love to hear from you. Keep the conversation going. Thanks for your time and listening today.